mini episode 1588 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1587. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, and one of our favorite FDH Lounge dignitaries is on with us, one of the great FDH Lounge dignitaries, FDH Hoops Analyst Ben Chu. We are breaking down the 2022-2023 NBA trade deadline one of the bigger ones in recent years, uh, maybe one of the biggest ones ever. I mean, I don't want to go recency bias here, but uh, just a lot, a lot, a lot of bombs being thrown back and forth. And uh, as far as uh, blowing across the country, let's just say in the opposite direction of the way the weather goes, right? The weather tends to blow west to east. I think this was sort of the anti-weather trading deadline because it looked like a lot of east to west movement. But uh, so much to get to, so much to talk about with our great friend, Ben Chu. Ben, great to have you on, buddy. And uh, again, you like me, I'm sure we're just, your head was swimming just trying to keep up with it. Yeah, it was fast and furious on that one. It reminded me a little bit of this year at the NFL trip that line, Rick, that there was a new deal coming a mile a minute. Exactly. Except, uh, you know, in the NFL, I mean, they're never as impactful. In the NBA, you are getting into, you know, franchise players and everything like that because the equivalent of this in the NFL would have to be uh, you know, like back in the day, if Brett Favre had been a trading deadline guy, right? Like the big time quarterbacks or like MVP candidates, like you'd never see that midseason in the NFL. You rarely see that in the offseason in the NFL. But in the NBA, increasingly, in season or out of season, you can see some of the best players in the sport moving around. And we saw a good number of them in this case and other highly impactful players as well. Yeah. And I mean, we, we had. Was it essentially two superstars go out of the East, go to the West? And you saw a lot of mid-level talent switch teams and, you know, a lot of teams building up their their uh, draft capital and also in terms of salary cap dumping, too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of movement this year. I, I don't think in terms of high pro – there were high-profile trades. I don't know how many great trades there were or how many, like, impactful trades there were outside of maybe the top three. But it's, it was definitely an interesting time in seeing how everyone's also, who were the sellers at the deadline, trying to prepare for Wemby Mania coming up soon. Exactly. And then uh, a handful of teams that did little or nothing, and I think in some cases that was actually beneficial based on the way that they assessed the landscape, and we'll be getting to that. But as far as the, uh, the big moves here, of course, the commonality of this would be the dismantling, the finalization of the dismantling of the Brooklyn Nets, and we're going to have a thing here, man, this 30 for 30 on the dynasty that never was is going to be wild because uh, less than two years after it all came together here, the last pieces of the puzzle, first Kyrie going to Dallas, then Durant going to Phoenix. I was laughing with you off air about waking up to your text on Thursday morning about Durant going to Phoenix. And uh, so those moves 
falling into place here. The draft capital, the players that uh, the Nets got back. And, that, and the funny thing is, like, they got enough players back to be, like, you know, a respectable team. Like, this is a, a thing where, I mean, if you're going to tank, they got way too much talent there. So, look, they're going to be getting rid of these guys left and right. It was funny. I mean, Spencer Dinwiddie, all the memes about the guy that comes back kind of strutting into the room, like, look at me now. You know, there is some of that because – he was dislodged, as was Karis LeVert, as was Jared Allen, to make way for the big three of those guys. And, of course, James Harden at the time. Now it's Ben Simmons and a bunch of uh, other role players at this point. And uh, people are looking at it like, whoa, they got back the draft capital from Phoenix that they lost to Houston. Except Houston's going to get great picks because they're going to suck and they're going to get late first-round picks from Phoenix. So, yeah, not so much. They're going to be down and out for a number of years between losing their picks and the pick swaps that we know will be coming. So let's, let's talk about this here. Uh, first of all, from the perspective of the end of the dynasty that never was in Brooklyn. I mean, for Brooklyn, I think they did a relatively good job because getting players like Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, even though he's going to be an unrestricted, he's going to be, I believe, either an unrestricted or a restricted free agent coming yep. up. I think they got enough capital in return, and I think we've discussed this too, Rick, there. I don't think they're a team that's going to be bottoming out. They have enough talent right now, and the emergence of Camp Thomas has pretty much made that team, in my opinion. I think they're probably going to get into the playoffs just because the East is not that great right now. Right. And if I'm Brooklyn, it's one of those situations where they tried their best to make it work. They were very incredibly close. That's a bad timing. It's a bad injuries. That's a bad luck. But overall, they're hitting the reset button. But to be honest, to give them some credit, it's a more, it's a more attractive reset button than I would say some of these other teams who have tried to do that recently. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, again, you can't undo history. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So from the perspective of what Brooklyn did from here, I agree with you. I think they did as much as they could have. Absent a time machine where they never do half of this stupid crap in the first place, then uh, I think, because uh, again, you should have known coming in. I mean, Kyrie had enough of a track record as far as handling things. Durant, uh, even Harden. I mean, you should have known that that was going to be a very, very volatile combination to begin with. And uh, again, on paper, of course, you would do this, but uh, that's why they play the games on TV, not on paper. So, but uh, you know, as far as the moves made, uh, Kyrie being the first of the uh, guys out heading to Dallas. And this is a thing where, again, you know, on paper, you look at it, I mean, it's an upgrade. Uh, again, when he's in there, when he's not hurt, when he's not on suspension for, you know, saying crazy things or whatever, you know, if we're not going to be dealing with any of that stuff, an upgrade even what the, over what they had over Jalen Brunson as a sidekick uh, to uh, Doncic last year. So there is that. But then there's all these other things that come into play as well as far as, you know, the potential for things to flare up with Kyrie. I mean, this is, uh, as far as somebody that just doesn't burn but napalms a bridge every time he leaves somewhere, you have all of that. Uh, but again, you know, I do see what Mark Cuban was looking at because, you know, on paper, you know, you've got that. You've got that incredible backcourt. you got to hope that the volatility is not going to be there to break up the chemistry and that the, the front court can pull its share. And I think ultimately the big question for Dallas right now is how both Doncic and Kyrie will coexist on the floor because we all know that Luke is a very high-usage guy, and because of that, it's going to be interesting to see how Kyrie 
reacts to that at certain periods of time. Now, Alibi, we all know Kyrie played with one of the highest usage players of all time in LeBron James, so it should, it's not anything too crazy. The only question I ultimately have with Dallas is, is that losing Dorian Finney-Smith in that trade is going to hurt them a little bit just because he was their best perimeter defender and had the ability to knock down three-pointers. So defensively, they got a lot weaker yep. in the fact of trying to get a little bit more offense with Kyrie playing. But it feels like, to me, if you're just looking at the overall flux of the talent in the West, it's a move they had to make. And again, it could be a little bit perceived as a desperate move, but we all know, too, Rick, in the NBA, you you, you win with superstar talent. You, you don't win with bit parts. And at this point of the season, it was apparent to a lot of us, including me, that Dallas was not going to be competing for a title this year unless they did something. Yeah, because, again... They were trapped in a situation last year where it's you look at the Knicks and the way that they're playing, and it's a little bit harder to argue than it was last summer that the Knicks overpaid for Brunson. But coming off of a career year, I felt like that's what they did. And Cuban was looking at it like he just didn't want to pay uh, the rate for it, overpay for him. It puts him in the situation later on of having to make this deal for Kyrie and give up assets in order to, like I said, probably improve yeah, over... Yeah, the key thing for them, too, Rick, just to interrupt, is yeah. it's going to be an unprotected, I believe, 2028 pick at one point. Yeah, so, you know, there there is that, and uh, again, as far as everything that they uh, they gave up in return, yeah, they, hope, they have to hope that they are going to be uh, deep enough at other areas, but some of the moves made by other teams may be a little bit problematic as far as how that goes. Uh, of course, the primary team that we would be talking about in that regard is arguably the new favorite in the Western Conference, the conference champions from two years ago, the Phoenix Suns, and uh, the shocking deal that materialized, getting Kevin Durant, and obviously, you know, you give up a lot uh, to, to get him, you give up a lot in terms of the picks, and uh, as far as uh, some of the great wing, not great, but really good wing players that were going back to Brooklyn, but it's one of those things where you strike where the iron's hot and you look at teams and you go, well, is it a thing of like our time is now, the next year or two years? That is indisputably the case for Phoenix because Booker is still a young guy, but Durant is not, and especially CP3 is not. A lot of city miles on that guy, a product of the 2005 NBA draft class. So they got to win in the next year or two. But boy, did they set themselves up to do it. And they kept uh, Aiton in the process, their fourth best player. Mm -hmm. And I think overall, Rick, I mean, you would argue that they have the most talent on a single team at this point in the league. Sure. And just in general, my, I think this Phoenix team isn't a favorite right now just because we still have no idea if all four of those guys are going to remain healthy at any point in the season. And because we all know essentially one injury is going to really derail their efforts there, but... Again, one of the, the concerns you do have for with Phoenix is that we all know Durant's a great player. We don't need to argue that. They have some really good scores, but their defense is going to get significantly weaker with no Bridges or Cam Thomas. And right now, the biggest question mark to me is their bench. Right. They lost a lot of depth with that deal, and it feels like, to me, the NBA is trending more towards teams being much deeper instead of being more top-heavy. And it feels like the concern I have for a team like Phoenix is, is that if you were to lose one of these guys during the playoffs, do you think campaign can step up? Do you think Landry Shamit can step up? Do you think this Mac Biombo can step up? Uh, it's there's a lot more questions than answers, but at least on 
talent alone, this Phoenix team should be good. But it's just more like that all their main pieces outside of Aiden Rick have dealt with severe injury concerns. And it's causing me to think they're really one injury away from kind of being just another average team in the Western Conference. Well, the one thing is, too, when you look at this, I mean, deals of that magnitude, really, I guess if you look at Dallas and so many other teams making really big swings, I guess you could look at this as well. But I'm thinking in particular for Phoenix, a move of this kind of magnitude leading to an NBA championship the same season, I'm not sure, but I think maybe you got to go back to Clyde Drexler in 95 with Houston because uh, a lot of times, you know, teams – win the championship with essentially the team they started with at the beginning of the season. You'll get some upgrades along the way. But getting an upgrade of this level during the season, it happens far less often than you would think, A, but and B, far less often than you would think in terms of immediately translating into a championship. Right. And I think the major thing, Rick, just in terms of that is that if you're just looking at the overall mediocrity, I would say, of the Western Conference this year, that you have to take swings where you can, and I feel like this is a time where Phoenix had to take a swing. And to get Kevin Durant, arguably the best pure scorer in NBA history, is not the worst decision on earth, if we're being honest. Right. But then again, the question ultimately is going to be is like, how's their defense going to evolve over this? Will they? Will people start to attack DeAndre Ayton more in the post? Will they decide to flex their lineups a little bit more? And again, we're also going to have to depend on Chris Paul being healthy in the playoffs too. So there's just so many questions that it's hard for me to fully get behind this as like the blockbuster deal that will get Phoenix a championship. Yeah. I mean, there's more to it than that. uh, Definitely. Although again, I think they have a lot more reason to feel optimistic than do the Lakers because uh, again, they were finally able to (laughs) unload uh, Westbrook. They were able to make a deal that uh, brings them back a decent number of assets here. You know, you, you've got Russell coming back their way and Beasley and uh, a couple of guys that fit in, make them a little bit deeper, do help the outside shooting a bit, although uh, Russell, how he coexists with the ball with LeBron is going to be interesting. But you, you look at all of that with the Lakers, and they're happy with what they did, but this was a, something that was not quite at the tail end of the, the trading deadline here. So the moves that were made afterwards, I would think, would make the, Le- the Laker fans a lot less optimistic than they were perhaps uh, at the initial adrenaline rush of unloading Westbrook and the contract and getting guys back. Right, and I think that we, we discussed this too, Rick, is that the Lakers are going to be a competitive team moving forward just because they have LeBron James. And we all know this. Like, even at LeBron at his current age, after breaking Kareem's scoring record this week, it's not surprising to me that the Lakers are going to need to make some moves to appease the fan base. And they got a lot of solid talent in return, getting D'Angelo Russell, who's the guy who can definitely set the table a little bit more for LeBron and has an outside shot, which Westbrook does not have. He's never had during his career. We should not be surprised by this. Right. But, yeah. So it feels like to me that the Lakers made some auxiliary moves to get better, which, again, they can. The problem is is that when you're in a muddled Western Conference, none of the moves they made really push anything forward. And it kind of feels like Anthony Davis is in this weird sort of headspace right now that I don't really know for sure what he's thinking, what he's doing. (laughs) It just kind of seems like the Lakers were doing just enough to get into the playoffs, Rick, and they just want to appease the fan base and then try and make their big run next season. So at the end of the day, you, you say the Lakers definitely improved, but it's those improvements I don't know are going to get them past maybe one round of the playoffs. 
Well, and they they had to do what they had to do because of the yeah, toxicity. Yeah, they had to do something. And, and the, right. the important part for Laker fans, too, is that they still have their 27 pick and their 29 pick because the 27 pick is top four protected now. So. Yes. And it's one of those things where just because of the toxicity of the situation they were in, they had to do something. But, I mean, that's dealing from weakness. When you say they had to make a move, that's a, a situation that a lot of other contending, or in their case, as they were before this, wannabe contending teams were not in. Some of them had uh, the, the luxury of not exactly standing pat because uh, I think it was, uh, wasn't it only the Cavs and the Bulls, I think, that didn't make any deals? So, Pretty much, I believe, yeah, Cavs and the Bulls were the only two, yeah. And in, in, in the case of the Bulls, that's less understandable because, you know, they got one foot in both worlds. I mean, they're not a real contender, and they weren't last year, even when people were uh, getting overly excited about where they were at. They were never a real contender, but, uh, again, they want to delude themselves into believing that they are. Uh, and, again, they don't want to go the route of yet of blowing it up and starting over. In the case of the Cavs, uh, now there were other teams out there. Denver didn't like exactly stand still, but it feels like they mostly kind of did. There are other teams that maybe just kind of tinkered around the edges a little bit. The Cavs stood still, and I have to say as a lifelong Cavs fan, from my perspective, it was something I was happy to see because it was a thing where I'm a believer in only making moves if there's reasons to make moves. And I saw no reason to make moves there, and uh, that was a thing where... Uh, again, I don't know how many teams were in that situation, but the, the Cavs moved up a spot in the standings just by doing nothing alone because uh, Brooklyn not only forfeited their top four spot, but the playoffs altogether by making the moves they did. So the Cavs, as of right now, are a top three team probably uh, in the East, or at least arguably so. So talk about that, the whole decision of, like, if you don't see some kind of slam-dunk improvement, just kind of stay what you are, stay where you're at and uh, don't uh, part with any assets. Right, and, and the analogy a lot of people would make is that sometimes the best way to get better is to not get insanely better. Right. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, but sometimes the best moves are the smallest moves you can made at, make at the end of the day. And to bring Cleveland in those, they didn't really have many big options. There weren't any big things that they were probably targeting. I know Cam Reddish was talked about for them, and also uh, Sadiq Bey was also tossed around as well. But both of those guys were moved Reddish came to my neck of the woods in Portland and played last night in their game against Oklahoma City. So it, sometimes you have to make smaller moves to make better moves. Another team that we didn't really mention that did make a move was Milwaukee. They picked up Jay Crowder from Phoenix in that sort of multi-swap scenario with yep. Durant. So it's going to be interesting. Milwaukee is right now on a tear. They've won 11 of their last 12. So yeah. they're not only a game out behind Boston and East. So it's going to be very interesting. And with Denver... It's an interesting situation. I know Bones Highland's a great young player, but apparently he played heads with head coach Michael Malone. So it's not too surprising. And it's intriguing to see that they got Thomas Bryant from the Lakers, who's that, who kind of was taken off the trash heap there for a minute. But he's had some really solid games, and hopefully that can help their bench depth because if you look at the plus on and off minus numbers for Jokic when he's not on the floor, they are horrifically bad. Yeah. <laughs> So a guy like Thomas Bryant, even though he's not a legend, he's not a great big player. He's not a, I would say, not a spectacular player, but he's a guy who can get the job done, get rebounds, and hopefully maybe play that little backup post up role that a lot of older, a lot of teams in like the late early 2010s did. 
Well, yeah. A big guy who could come off the bench like a Montrezl Harrell who could get you easy baskets. Yeah, I mean, and that has a definite amount of value to it, no question about it. I will say in the case of the Cavs, I, I had an ongoing uh, disagreement with uh, longtime FDH Lounge dignitary Anthony Patrone about this. He wanted Cam Reddish, and he won't admit it, but I think it's because he's irrationally uh, hating on Dylan Windler, who, again, 26th pick in the draft. What do you expect? Like, okay, so the guy's not in the rotation. He's always hurt, but... The, him being a guy, him and I guess a second-round pick potentially for Cam Reddish, was, that was the outlines we were hearing about publicly. My thing is, again, I don't like to make a move just to make a move, and especially if you already have impeccable team chemistry. And the Cavs went from at the bottom of their rebuild in 2018-2019, maybe bottom five in the league, to probably top five in the league in chemistry. And that's the thing where you bring in Cam Reddish, He's not demonstrably better than anybody you have in that spot there. And his three-point shooting percentage was like five points worse than just about anybody else in there. So you're marginalizing Levert and Osman and Okoro, who as much as I've been suspicious of him has been playing pretty good recently, uh, and, and even Lamar Stevens and Wade. And for what? That's my whole thing, that you are potentially putting chemistry at risk if you make a trade for a guy who's lateral at best, and you're saying to the existing players, okay, you got to sacrifice for the shiny new toy. Right, and I think the reason why Portland was able to take that sort of risk was that Josh Hart had fallen out of, kind of fallen into this weird sort of hybrid rotation where, hybrid role in the rotation where he wasn't playing well. He had some shooting problems over his last 10 games. I think he was shooting like 34% from the field and like 25% from three, so... He wasn't playing well, and Portland's been looking for a wing for a while, and Reddish definitely showed some promise last night. But it's it, there are times, again, especially when you're a contending team, you don't want to... I uh, We've discussed this on prior podcasts. Where I'm not the biggest chemistry guy in mm. terms of, like, you need to have perfect chemistry to win an NBA championship, but there is such thing I know as bringing in a guy who can be a distraction to your team right. and then causing problems that could knock you off that trajectory. Right, and that's the thing where, and I'm not saying anything negative about Cam Reddish, but this is an interesting philosophical point because it's a thing where if you're, there are a lot of things that you put chemistry at risk for. I mean, they're just sometimes you just got to do it, right? But it's like if you're bringing in a lateral guy, I think as a macro level statement, I'm not a big fan of bring, of disrupting chemistry potentially, potentially by bringing in a lateral guy. To me, it's got to be an improvement if you're putting that at risk. Right, and I think the thing, too, is especially in the NBA, I don't think the, I think we overvalue chemistry a lot on teams. Like, again, you know, if you like the guys you play with and you create good rosters, you want good chemistry on your team. But we're also in the timeline of the league where I don't think there's a lot of big interpersonal rivalries with a lot of these teams. And I don't think there's that sort of purveyance in, like, the 80s and 90s of guys completely hating each other and so, like, the death at the period of time. You know what I mean, Rick? I know. I know what you mean. It's a, lot, a, little, bit, it's a little bit warm and fuzzier at that point in the league right now. So I, I don't... I, I think chemistry is important, but again, I think we overvalue chemistry just because I think there's a scenario where if you... You can have one or two guys that aren't well-liked by your team, but if they still win, it doesn't... If you still win with them, it doesn't matter. Oh, right. I mean, it's one of those things where... If you have chemistry and nothing else, you're going to be in a shite position and it's not really going to matter. But it's one of those things yeah. where, you know, look, as far as chemistry goes, all you got to do is look in Brooklyn the last two years or so. And the fact that they couldn't keep that team together, 
because of the inability of everyone internally to coexist. I think that's sort of the extreme end of the spectrum as far as where it can really bite you. And uh, when you go to look at it here, uh, you know, the different teams, what they did, uh, one of the other contenders we haven't really talked about much yet, uh, Memphis, because like I said, there might have been only been two teams that stood still in this thing altogether. But uh, for Memphis, I think it was just sort of around the margins. Uh, and they're a team recently that uh, for as much as you and I picked them to come out of the West before the season, uh, this is a team that maybe could have used a boost here at the deadline. But uh, again, you, you could make an argument for where in a couple of different uh, positions. Right. And Memphis might have had more of the more interesting under-the-radar deals that deal with the Clippers to get Luke Kennard because they do struggle with their three-point shooting. I believe they're at the bottom half of the league in mm -hmm. three-point shooting as of this current moment. But again, the question is, is that they had an opportunity to make a bigger swing if they wanted to. But again, I also know the Grizzlies have been doing a lot of homegrown talent and in terms of trying to build their most of their rotation from the draft. And it feels like at times the question ultimately for them is, will they get out of their own way almost in a way, Rick? Like, they are a good young team. But the problem it feels like to me is at times is that John Morant is the figurehead of that team. He's a fantastic player. But I feel like he's running into Iverson territory where the greatness of the player doesn't overshadow the concerns that he is bring, bringing around that franchise and all these other scenarios. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because, uh, you know... Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Also, I mean, again, we were in the deadline, but we also are amiss to say that there was that story earlier, mm -hmm. I think it was two days earlier, that one of his friends got banned from FedEx Forum. Yeah. So. Well, and that's the kind of thing going forward here as far as, uh, you know, relations with your best player and what that bodes for the long term. So, uh, yes, there are definite uh, concerns uh, about that. Uh, it's funny, the, the two other teams in Cali are the ones that we're getting to uh, subsequently, or two of the other three. Uh, well, the, all three teams are ahead of uh, the Lakers, but for the moment, let's leave it with the Kings and the Clippers. They never get nearly as much attention as the Lakers, but they're both having significantly better seasons, especially the Kings. Uh, the Clippers, uh, boy, again, I, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but it was a lot of, it, it might, some of it felt like moves just to make moves, but I mean, they had a good amount of roster turnover here. There's thought that they might add Westbrook before it's all said and done. There's people pushing for it. Uh, the Kings, uh, again, some moves more so around the margins as well, uh, but uh, both teams setting themselves up uh, pretty well for the playoffs, and uh, the, the Kings at the moment, it's very thin, but at the moment would host a first-round series. So the odds of either one of these two teams getting through the first round, it's going to be tough because some of the first-round matchups are going to be brutal, but the Kings and the Clippers seem to be set up pretty well for that uh, coming out of the deadline, I would think. Yeah, they, both both the Kings were the, obviously one of the biggest surprises in the league this year. And it, it seems like to me they're still they're probably going to hold st steady for the rest of this year and probably get into the playoffs their first time since 2006. So it, they're interesting. The Clippers are essentially making moves around the edges. We're probably going to see a little bit more of Terrence Mann running more playmaking plays with Kyrie, not excuse me, not Kyrie with Kawhi and mm -hmm. uh, Paul George on the floor. It's just both of those teams to me, Rick, are kind of mid-tier level playoff teams, even though they're currently, unless I'm mistaken, they're third and fifth in the Western Conference. I might be At the, at the moment, as we're taping this, yes. Uh-huh, as we're taping this, yes. Yeah, so it, it, they're making those moves around the edges that all good playoff teams do, which is you have to bolster your roster, you have to get better just via that. But, 
they don't really strike me as teams that are going to do great in the playoffs. They both kind of feel like either one and done or two and done. So it's hard to get excited for those franchises, but for to use the analogy, the Clippers are and to use both actually, they're both in very good positions to make a deep run next season if the chips fall where they may. Yes, and uh, two of the teams that could, if they get things going their way leapfrog them are presently the seven and eight seeds at the time that we're taping this Golden State and New Orleans and I will say whatever we say about Golden State's big deal may be dated by the time this thing hits air because I would expect this to be resolved after we tape but before it's up so we don't know how that's going to go with them either getting Peyton back or not but Golden State New Orleans uh, in that mix there uh, Minnesota dealing with uh, the, the after-effects of their ill-fated acquisition in the offseason of Rudy Gobert, and uh, the team that uh, they dealt with having a surprisingly good season who had offloaded uh, Gobert, uh, Utah, uh, that they are sitting there. Again, they, they thought they'd be in the Wemby sweepstakes this year. You and I knew that they had too much talent on the roster to make it happen, even if we didn't see quite this level of uh, success coming out of them but uh, the teams in the seven through ten spots I, I think are pretty well set up to make some noise coming down the stretch yeah and they're going to be interesting Golden State's going to be interesting to see how that team comes together and you know seeing just how much talent they have that's essentially why they ship James Weissman out to Detroit so they can get they can get some space and if GP2, based off of his injury history, will be able to return for the playoffs, it's going to be a huge help to them. But just looking at, I mean, just that too, New Orleans was dealing with their, they've been dealing with injury issues for a while now. And it's, both of those teams can make deep playoff runs if they, if they can put it all together. It's just, again, Rick, I'll note back to one of my prior points. It's just so muddled right now in the Western Conference. It's really hard to get super excited about any of these teams right now. Denver is the best team in the West right now, and they arguably trade away their their best scorer off the bench. So I don't know. There's a lot in this trade deadline that causes me confusion, to be brutally honest with you. Uh, There is. There is. And uh, as far as confusion goes, Let's look at the 12 seed as we're taping this here in the West Portland. You and I have been talking about this for a period of time and that uh, there might have been a little bit of false sense of security. What was it, 2019 when they made it as far as the Western Conference Finals? But I think it has been probably past time for a period now uh, to move Dame, move him to a contender, uh, maybe let him have that Clyde Drexler exclamation point to his career. Uh, and, and, and more importantly, get out of the middle of the road here because that's essentially where they are. They're not in the Wemby sweepstakes. Uh, they really never were coming into the season. They've had a, You and I have said this. They've had a better year than I expected them to have. But at no point were they ever a legitimate contender in the West, nor are they now with the moves that some of the big teams in the West made. So was it time to move Lillard, or, or have they missed their moment perhaps altogether on doing that for maximum advantage? I mean, the question, too, is that I don't think you ever do because you always have the opportunity to get more talent later. Okay. You know, that, that's always going to happen. Everyone assumes that, oh, you missed your time. You won't get enough for a superstar athlete. But in most cases, usually we will. And then people will obviously be courting Damian Lillard in the offseason. I think ultimately the question for him in his timeline, remaining timeline here in Portland, is does he is he – accepting of the fact that he might not win a title in his NBA career, but still be a legendary player for a very notable 
franchise in the league. If he's willing to accept that, he'll probably stay. But if not, if he wants to win a ring, it's probably that timeline where the team is in flux. They're also currently, they'll be on the sale block at some point. So I, I at least from my understanding, it's going to be, it feels like to me that the window that Willard is currently chasing to try and get a ring, I'm not 100% sure they're going to get the players and he needs at this period of time because by the time they do or where the window is for that team it's going to be a little bit too late but it's 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 an interesting situation because they made a lot of what uh, very similar to like milwaukee and memphis like moves around the corners they got Thibel from philly who had fallen out of favor with doc rivers so i don't think it's ever too late if they want to make the deal but the question is for portland if you do make the deal it's going to probably turn into what it was before Willard got there, which was a couple of long seasons of bad teams and mediocrity. And at this point, I think it's been more beneficial to keep him here than it is just to let him go for bit parts. I would agree with that completely. Uh, now, you mentioned Philly. You look at the Eastern Conference, and again, I, I think for all intents and purposes, it's a four-team race here at this point. You have Boston, who's had the great season thus far. Milwaukee, who, as you said, has been a real house of fire recently. Uh, Philadelphia, who they've always got their ups and downs, uh, but uh, they're presently in the three spot as we're taping this. The Cavs at the four presently. I, I think uh, Miami's a little bit of uh, fake currency here as far as a team you know, in the mix. I don't take them nearly as seriously. And then from there, I think Knicks, Hawks, Bulls, uh, whatever. So... Do you agree with me it's basically a four-team race, that it's the Cavs who we talked about previously and then these other three teams? Pretty much. I mean, it's a four-team race at this point, unless a team like New York or a team like Atlanta can get hot a little bit later this season. But, you know, it's a four-team race in the East. It's going to come down to Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, and Cleveland at that point to determine who's going to be the winner. And it also will determine how the chips fall where they may because some of those matchups are going to be a lot harder for certain teams then some are going to be a lot easier for certain teams. So Brooklyn's in this weird spot where they're in the fives hole at this point, and it could feel like they could either they're – e- they're either going to fall out of the playoffs entirely or they're going to hover in that, like, five to eight slot just because he, they have such an advantage right now in the East that I don't think they're going to be bad enough to fall into the play-in tournament. Exactly. Uh, meanwhile, on the periphery of the play-in tournament, you have Toronto – uh, which, uh, and again, and as we're taping this here, we'll have to see, you know, what ends up happening, uh, you know, with uh, the four-team uh, trade that uh, involved uh, Golden State and, and all of that. But as far as it goes with Toronto, we, just, we, we thought it would be kind of locked in at this point in time by the time we taped this that uh, uh, Ananobi would be moving elsewhere and, you know, some of these other guys. So I think we kind of know at this point here that uh, Toronto uh, didn't really commit to a direction, and that is surprising because uh, it's unlikely that they're going to want to bring back some of these expiring contracts here, but to not get something for these guys, uh, you know, they really should have picked a lane, I think, and gone with it. Yeah, and I tend to agree with you. I think Masai Ujiri is a very smart general manager in this league, but it was surprising they stood pat because this team clearly is not good enough to compete with the top teams in the Eastern Conference. And I think that's where Toronto wants to be. And when there's the scenario where Gary Trent Jr. and and Fred Van Vliet might not even stay with the team and you're essentially just going to be a team that's led by Barnes and Pascal Siakam, it, it, it doesn't really seem like everything's going well. And again, we, we've discussed this, Rick, on another, another podcast. Their biggest issue this season is their three-point shooting. They are 28th in the league right now. 
Right. In today's NBA, you cannot. If you're 28th in the league in three pointers, you're not winning many games. Well, and you would have thought with that backcourt that it wouldn't have been an issue, right? That's what's really kind no, of surprising. No, you wouldn't. No, like Van Van Vliet struggled to start the season, and then Gary Trent Jr. has been good to average. So it's right. it's very hard to look at that. I mean, because at least I would make this analogy too, Rick. That if you look on paper, this isn't really the worst. This is a pretty decent team. But you see other teams leapfrog them, and you're you look at them and like, well, is Toronto that much better than them? Is Toronto that much better than them? And that's just the honest case that Toronto's in a flux year after all that sort of hype from last season. Right. It's just sometimes in the NBA, the rule I always like to say is you have to you don't have to necessarily pick a direction, but you have to be leaning towards a direction at least. It would it would be kind of crazy. You look at it here. I mean. There's a scenario, isn't there, where they make it into the play-in, where they come out of it, and then like a 1-8 with Boston. I mean, yeah. it's not the most impossible thing in the world that like they, they take Boston to six games and everybody scratching yeah, their they, heads going, what happened? scenario, too, where they take Milwaukee to six or seven games Yeah, well. yeah. I mean, you know, because they've had success against them previously, of yeah, course. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I, I, you can't rule out. If they get into the playoffs, I don't, I don't think they'd be a favorite against any higher seed. Right. But I think against the big four, they're all they're a scary team. They would be, and actually, and against maybe, and again, maybe Rick, we just answered our own question. Maybe Masai Ujiri is like, let me roll the dice, let me see what happens. That must be. I mean, maybe he's committing which, which to is this. Not, it's not the worst thing to do, but I argue that's not the smart thing. To do. I think it's not the smart thing to do either, because you have to have success that's going to carry over past this year, and he's not likely to want to commit to those contracts. I will tell you from talking to you now. I've decided this in real time. That's the scenario I'm rooting for, is for them to get into the eighth seed. Because looking at this here with the Cavs of the four seed, let's let's see whoever plays Boston in the first round or Milwaukee, whoever the Cavs would get in round two. Let's see them make them sweat. And Toronto is the, probably the best make them sweat candidate out of the bunch, aren't they? I would I would say so at this point. I mean, also another team that could be interesting if is is if Atlanta ever figures it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I'm not the biggest Sadiq Bay fan, but I think he's a very good piece for them because they did kind of they kind of are struggling right now with that power forward position, and he is a very consistently good player for the when he was on the Pistons. So. Yes, there is that definitely. So they improved too, and I mean, I don't think it's really crazy, but you know, you know, I, it's just a complete, you know, it, it, it's both conferences too, Rick. I mean, if you look at to flip the playing tournament to the Western Conference. Right. That's crazy. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, two of the teams in the 7, 8, and 9, and 10 spots, three out of the four teams I'd make the argument, Rick, could win a first-round playoff series if the chips fall where they may. Yeah, that is true. That's true. And I'm not, I'm, <laughs> if you think about it, Golden State, New Orleans, Utah, I don't think they'll beat a team, but they could definitely win a couple of these games. Right, yeah. Oh, that's the thing, that in, in, in the Western Conference, I, I think you have six teams uh, that are capable, uh, you know, uh, or, or maybe even eight, potentially, of, uh, of winning a first-round series. It would kind of depend on who. I mean, for I would have to say, like, for Phoenix, it would have to be a matter of, you know, if they drew, like, say, Golden State at, like, full potential, ironically, you know, I think that's kind of what it would take to take out Phoenix in the first round. I don't think they're that really vulnerable to having much of anything happen. And uh, I would also think, too, that, like, Denver and Memphis would probably not be, you know, susceptible to too much. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have potentially 
six teams and maybe as many as eight teams that uh, it's not impossible for them to come out of it in the first round. The, the, the West is really, I think we've reverted to where it was a couple of years ago because in the, in the last year or so it feels like it's blurred a little bit between the East and the West as far as the power structure. But I think we are now w way back towards what has been, and, and quite frankly, hasn't that been the dynamic for most of the 21st century, that the East has been kind of top-heavy and the West uh, has had, you know, series that from the first round on could be super compelling, and I feel like we've returned to that. Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for the league. And, I mean, the Eastern Conference, too, even though it is a little bit weaker from the top heaviness, those teams that are in the 5 through 10 slots are not slouches at all. Mm -hmm. There are some good teams that could definitely win some games off teams that possibly win a series if something works in their favor. Like, the analogy, and we, we would discuss this, Rick, like, to compare it to like the 90s or the early 2000s where the 8th seed was pretty much fodder for the number overall number one seed. And now right. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we're starting to see more and more that the talent gap in the league is not as dramatic as it used to be. Sure. And it kind of depends on who uh, the one seed's going to draw. So like I said, I, I'm kind of rooting for it to be maybe Toronto or somebody to kind of soften them up. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's all based on how it uh, shakes out situationally but uh in, in terms of the landscape of the two conferences here uh any other thoughts that you have coming out of the trading deadline based on the way that uh, things have kind of changed heading down the stretch i mean uh, obviously phoenix is the biggest thing because essentially a lot of they were pretty much what was it about a month ago slotted for the play attorney dealing with devin booker's injury and now it kind of feels like they're in the perceptive top five in the league, because it feels like at least visually to me with a guy like Chris Paul on the floor, who despite being up there in age is still one of the best pure passers in today's NBA. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting how the distribution of Booker Durant and Chris Paul is going to work with a and two. So it's, it feels even more muddled than it was before, but there might be some clarity with teams competing in a, it's clear Phoenix and their new owner, Matt Yeshiba, was clearly trying to make a splash. And sometimes in life, if you need to make a splash, you go out and get arguably the best pure scorer in the league's history. So that's what you got to do. But the question is, with all these situations, is that there's so much injury potential and there's so much wackiness that could still occur that even though we think we know the trade deadline actually benefited a lot of teams, it might have just hurt or muddled the situation even more for a bunch of teams. That is entirely possible. And I will just say, uh, again, that uh, completely uh, from the, the point of view of a, a smug kind of a thing here, and uh, what I like to see as far as like sticking at the people, uh, the NFL having the trading deadline hit during Super Bowl week Part of the reason I think you saw Roger Goodell with a boo-boo face at the uh, State of the League meeting here this year was having it get stepped on by the trading deadline. And, oh, by the way, the host city of the Super Bowl ending up getting Kevin Durant. So for a man who tries to openly colonize the calendar 365 days a year, uh, let's take over everything, let's have people talking about the NFL every month, I just love it that Roger Goodell and the NFL got stepped on this week. Serves them right. <laughs> well, uh, as we, we all like to say at the end of the day, this is why the NBA is a true 365 days a year league at this time. <laughs> yes, yes. The the NFL uh, is bigger than them, to be sure, and the Christmas yes. Day ratings prove No one, it. even me, will argue against that. Yes. And, and arguably, again, 
we're taping this just before Super Bowl Sunday. So yes. of all things, you know, exactly. we all know the magnitude that the NFL has. But the major thing is that, especially with leagues moving forward and just the popularity of the game, and then obviously we're going to be talking about the CBA in future right. podcasts as well. The growth of the league is probably, in terms of just totality, the healthiest it's probably been in a long time as well. So. Yep. And purely for the M- NBA, I mean, and again for the NFL, that there's a little bit of shine off the window. But at the end of the day, we'll we'll see how that uh, Kansas City Chief Philadelphia Eagles matchup occurs, and see if we get a good Super Bowl or if we just get a mass Super Bowl. Exactly, and uh, you know, purely through the prism of being a 365 day a year league. I think that is the one area where the NBA is up on the NFL as they proved it again this week. And that's one of those things where in that one way, in that one narrow, limited way, Adam Silver can say to Roger Goodell, keep on my level, because the NBA proved it <laughs> yet again here. Yeah, and also, we, we'll say this too, Rick. The NFL is arguably the biggest powerhouse sports, and we all love the NFL. Me and you yeah. have discussed this Oh, yeah. I just podcasts, I hate the, the I hate the, the day, business side of it. That the NFL is a very America's heavy sport. Yes, and I just, the NBA is a global sport, baby. That's the, that's the only difference you need to know. Right, and I just I just hate and resent the business side of the NFL more than other sports, just because I find it to be so much more obtrusive and obnoxious. So, like I said, yeah. just just purely in that uh, you know selfish kind of a way, I was happy to see the NBA. Stick it to them this week, getting this kind of attention. But uh, a trade deadline for the ages. I think we have a stretch run and a playoff run for the ages coming up. We've talked about this dynamic for about the last two years or so on the show, that we're at one of those rare points in league history. You have the holdover players from the previous era. You have LeBron and Durant and Kyrie and all of them that are still at this moment, and Steph Curry and everyone else playing at that level. You got the next generation coming along. Giannis already has a ring. You got Doncic. You got the Joker. You got Embiid. Uh, you got uh, my boy Donnie Mitchell. It's an exciting time, Ben. It's a unique time in league history. We don't get too many periods of time of overlap of the players of one era and the players of the next era overlapping at the highest level, but we're in the midst of probably about a three or four year run of this happening, and it just is great for the sport. And just also the use of the competitive nature, just to compare it back to the NFL. The NFL has, is embracing what the NBA learned years ago, which is parity is good, baby. Yep. Parity is great. You get more teams, more excitement. So it's going to be really interesting to see if, if you know, who comes out of the East, if Denver's going to get over the hump in the West finally. It's just so many storylines. And so many opportunities to see where to essentially change the destiny of the league for a bunch of these teams moving forward. That's right. It's going to be an incredible thing to watch. We'll be on top of it. Appreciate you as always. Thank you so much, Ben Chu, the great FDH Lounge dignitary and FDH Hoops analyst. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge mini-episode 1587.